Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the podcast. So, if you guys are listening to this one, this is a special day. This is our first ever NBA offseason podcast. Ibrahim and Tamim are here again with me. You guys excited? I'm excited to talk some basketball. Excited, man. Really excited to talk some NBA finals and offseason stuff. Yeah, you know, um, I really hate to start the podcast off on a sad note, but we were all wrong, guys. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> yeah. So we as a podcast take the L. Um if we have any fans, I bet they're disappointed in us right now. But uh, the 40 listeners out there right now, we're sorry for Hey, 40 is not bad, man, you know. <laughs> yeah, man. That's really not bad. It's a good start. Yeah, that's more well, electoral votes than uh, most of the states have in the US, so. Hey. I did, you know, counterfactual, I would say I did say that there was some risk if KD didn't play. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, know, we it's all just, kind of made that. We got to be back, you know? Game two. Yeah, I mean, I also think, I just want to get this discussion out of the way first because this is probably like the first big factor I see when I first look at the series was I think it's completely different um, if Clay uh, if Clay isn't out for game three and he doesn't go out um, in, in game six, I think it's definitely any one series in seven games. Um, that's my personal opinion uh, on that. Yeah, there there's definitely changes to the facts that were surrounding what our predictions were at the time. So you couldn't really forecast it. It wasn't, you know, we didn't have all the information. We didn't know KD was not going to play. We didn't know Thompson was gonna, was going to get injured. So those are those are two things that hurt the Warriors more than other teams. They they already have depth issues. They have uh, limited outside shooting aside from their starting four. Um, so those issues are kind of get magnified when you when you get injuries. That's true, and I and I think one thing like uh, piggybacking off of that that we, that we kind of discounted, and I think a lot of people discounted was how the Warriors' lack of depth would kind of make it easier for the Raptors to guard them. Because, you know, uh, I think, uh, personally, I discounted it because, you know, I, the Rockets were kind of using a similar strategy where, you know, they would kind of lay off all the uh, non-threats of the Warriors, and the Warriors still found a way to beat them. Um, yeah, it was with KD most of the series, but, you know, I think Game 6 against the Rockets was something that a lot of people overreacted from to think that the Warriors would have trouble with the Raptors. but Turns out the Raptors are a really, really good team. And, you know, they deserve to win the finals because they were able to kind of uh, take the Rockets strategy and, you know, execute it even better than the Rockets could. And that's why they won. Yeah, well, they, they did have a you know somewhat different strategy than the Rockets. They were playing a, a zone defense. And I, I think it was one of those. So a lot of people were pointing to the fact that they beat the, the Rockets without KD. I would say if the Rockets had a couple more days to prepare, they could have schemed a little bit better defensively and maybe played a zone like the Raptors did throughout the series. And they could have tried to take away um, the rest of the shooters the Warriors have. But you'd only you'd only play an exotic defense like the Raptors did with their box and, box and one if you have a couple days to defend and a couple days to go over your, your, your plan and figure out what you want well, to do. They still had like two days between the game. I mean, that's like standard... Yeah, but so much of the attention yeah, like, the Rockets were focusing on was was just uh, was switching defense, and that that requires a lot of work. In of itself, I mean, yeah, but that's part of the game, right? So, like yeah. to say that they couldn't do it in that time is 
I mean, to me, that says that they kind of got out coached and uh, I mean, they got outplayed, right? Like if you do, if you couldn't prepare enough in time, and the other team could, and the other team beat you, well, the Raptors, then that means the other team coached better, and the other teams the other team's players perform better. And yeah, like if you give them an extra day or two, maybe they do, but that's that's just not how the system is set up, right? So like to to me, Wait, uh, that says that one team got out coached. Uh, I'm going to interject here as well. I believe the um, I, I oh, sorry, actually, never mind. I was gonna say that I, I thought the Raptors had uh, they had like a whole week to prepare after the Bucks last game, right? So, yeah, so I think the preparation time, yeah, that's a factor, Tamman. But the other thing is, I think it's just the Raptors personnel in general have like a a lot higher defensive IQ. Um, I think the Rockets are a well coached defensive team, but at the same time, if you look at the Raptors personnel from top to bottom, like they can really execute almost anything and almost on oh, the yeah. fly, just like. Um, you know, the they're way... all like extremely skilled defensive players. They have like three former defensive players. Yeah, well, they have great depth players on their team. You know, great athleticism all around. Yeah, so those are two Absolutely. things you need to play the Warriors. Yeah, exactly. And I think like the box and one, um, that's something you can kind of uh, only play uh, when when the, when only Steph is on the floor without any of the other guys. And I think that um, I. It just something that, yeah, it takes preparation, but I think it's something that takes IQ because at the same time, you're going to be switching between d- different defenses um, throughout the game. And I think one instance where you see that is uh, for the Rockets, like they try to, uh, in the fourth quarter against the Warriors uh, in game six, um, th- they tried a bunch of different defenses to guard the Draymond Steph pick and roll. And on a few plays, they just busted it. Like they, they were gonna, supposed to do one thing different this time. And then all of a sudden, like, Draymond is running wide open or they're going to do one thing and then Draymond comes back to set a second pick and the you know uh Tucker is like no Tucker is doing something else and they kind of busted it right and that's something that doesn't happen when you have uh higher defensive IQ players and that's something the Raptors kind of hardly did I didn't see a lot of coverages where the Raptors just busted it so I think that was one key difference in my opinion that's a really good point that's a really I good point. Think, you know, that's that's one of the problems with switching defense. You think that you you have everything covered theoretically, but then you have things where where Draymond starts slipping screens before he comes up and he's he's wide open, and then now Tucker's he doesn't know if he should uh, play the play the slip for Draymond or if he should uh, aggressively switch out. So it just makes you second guess. I think it just speaks for how how smart the Warriors are, how great how great Draymond Green is. Um, in terms of IQ and in terms of setting screens, but the Raptors, the Raptors, they were able to sort of eliminate that problem with their zone defense because they said, you know, screw, screw everything else, we'll just put two guys on, force one guy to to be open, and see if he can make shots. And so it eliminates your mistakes on the star players, which is what the Raptors are trying to do, and make the the non shooters make plays, which uh, the Rockets didn't couldn't seem to do. Exactly, but the important thing to note about the zone is that you can only really play that if they only have one of Steph and Clay on the floor. Because if they have both of them on the floor, and you and you relieve someone open, then it turns into a situation yeah. where Clay or Steph, whoever doesn't have the ball, is running off and off an off ball screen wide open. So that's one important note. Yeah, which is, the Warriors offense is a little too sophisticated for for both of them to be on the court and for you to run the zone defense. So like, yeah, yeah. if one of them is on the court, then you can definitely switch to that, but. Um, but they but they ran that you need both, both you know? they ran that defense and both of them on the court too. Uh, I think a few times when they got burned on it. They also got burned on it a few times and they went away from it. I wonder uh, what, the, what, their net, what their net rating was with that with that defense. Uh, that 
pro- that's I don't that's not a stat I have off the top of my head or could find, but I would also be a really small sample size. But I mean, it just intuitively no, 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 wouldn't run it. Um, I think it's one of the mistakes. I think Kermit was he should have they should have went small, even if they were playing, um, even if they were playing guys like that that weren't uh, normally in the rotation. Um, they sh- they should have went small and put some shooters out there. They could have put um, some of their inexperienced guards out there. Sure, they're like they're not. They don't have playoff experience. They're not used accustomed to being out there. But I think the situation called for shooting, and they were getting they were getting burned. They they played Demarcus Cousins late in games, and he'd get exposed every session on defense. So I think they they should have went to what what they usually do, which is go small and and uh, switch play switching style of defense and set screens for Curry and Thompson and try to get sh- shots open. I think they kind of went away from that. Yeah. yeah, I agree, man. I thought that they played Demarcus way too much. And like there was some moments where he he played pretty well from them. I think game two was really big, but there were times in games three and four where he was like costing them several points possession after possession. And I was pretty surprised that they yeah, they didn't go small and they didn't I mean Quinn Cook played pretty well. Um McKinney didn't play a lot. Jurepko didn't play a lot either, but they don't really have anyone else besides that. So um, if they had gone smaller a little earlier and just let Quinn Cook do what he did in game uh, five, I think they maybe would have had a better chance to compete in the series. But, um, you know, that was that was the biggest thing for the Warriors is they just didn't have enough players, right? They just had too many injuries. Even Kevon Looney, like, Kevon Looney's injury was pretty big, I think, because um, he was the size that they were allowed to to keep out there and still be productive on offense, you know? Yeah, I think the issue with the Warriors going small, uh, that's a good idea, but what, what ends up happening is who can they go small with, right? Like, Quinn Cook is a shooter. The next guy um, who who can shoot and play defense, like, Quinn Cook can't really play defense, uh, first of all. Uh, Cousins can't play defense, and there's enough problems with him. He was a net negative in the series, in my opinion. But it's, it's like Ibrahim said, is eventually you run into a personnel problem. Like, there's only so much you can experiment because... At some point, you know that even if you try this guy out, it's not going to work out. Um, I think Damian Lee, I, I think he was injured or something. I don't know. But he was like, uh, he was one of their top three-point shooters in like a small sample size. But um, I think if he was healthy, maybe he could have mixed in. I don't know. I think the Warriors, yeah, they ran into a personnel problem, like Ebo said. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, the Raptors just had more guys to throw on the floor. They had like eight playable guys um, compared to the Warriors having like five, maybe. Yeah, and, and that's just what it came down to. Playing Quinn Cook would give you a chance to play the style that you usually play in terms of settings, Curry and Thompson off ball screens. If you have a guy that that can shoot threes when he's open, the Raptors can't play that aggressive zone defense and you can get out and do those things because you're getting exposed defensively anyway. So if, say if you played Quinn Cook, maybe he'd get exposed. But if you took Cousins out, you know, Overall, it balances out because cousins cousins would get exposed in different ways than than Cook, but they at, at the end of the day they'd both get exposed. And I think Quinn Cook would allow you to play your normal offense. Yeah, I mean they played Cook a, a pretty decent amount, Tamim. He was almost at fifteen minutes a game uh, this series. Um, I would yeah, prefer that. that I don't maybe, think that's enough. You don't think that's enough? I don't think that was enough. Uh, I mean, I mean, who's after, yeah? I mean, after after, after, after like, Clay going injured, like, who else are you really going to take yeah, out? Yeah, that's another big factor. Is like Clay is injured, man. Like, you know, it's 
it's tough. Um, I, I mean, Livingston was getting 16 minutes a game. Um, I mean, you know, Cook, Cook could have taken more of his minutes. I think at some point, though, it, it's tough because, I mean, he, he played as starters as much as he could. Um, yeah, I, I mean, they, they played a lot of guys, and I think the Raptors defensively had enough athleticism and length and skill um, to basically combat any lineup that the Warriors really played out there. Like there were so many points throughout the entire series where normally the Warriors would make a run in that situation and they would kind of just stop at three or four points. And then the Raptors would answer back with points of their own. There were so many points where the Raptors were up by like eight. And then you feel like the Warriors might make a couple shots and run their offense really nicely. And the Raptors defensively just had the personnel to stop them every single time. Right. Like that happened throughout the series no matter who was playing, even when clay was healthy, that was going on. Like it happened in so many different combinations and uh, lineups that are out that were out there that I, I just don't think the Warriors could have done anything else that they, they already did. I think Steve Kerr tried a lot of different lineups. He tried putting a lot of different people out there and DeMarcus cousins playing as much as he did was a mistake, but I mean, he tried a lot and they just ran out of players to play, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, oh, one thing I just wanted to put out there is that um, Quinn Cook did have the worst plus minus of any Warriors player in the series. But obviously, it's a small sample size. You don't know what would happen in a larger one. But uh, there's that. And then also, yeah, he, he's a small sample size and he did help them win game five. Yeah. It's a pretty big Exactly. And, and the thing is, it's it's a case of uh, I agree with you, Tamim, that he should have given more minutes to guys. But at the same time, it's a case of one step forward, two steps back, right? Like Cousins, for example, like he makes a great and one layup on one end. And then on the other end, he's not stepping up high enough on a Lowry pick and roll and Lowry has an open three. So it just kind of like something right happens for the Warriors and something bad happens for the Warriors. And that's kind of, you know, that's something I wanted to compliment the Raptors on, to be honest, because they were outstanding. Like Kyle Lowry, like now you know why the guy's making 30 plus million a year. (laughs) He killed it, man. Yeah, he he was killing it. you know, back to our Lowry Middleton argument uh, from the last podcast. Like, I think Lowry justified, you know, why you have a lot of faith in him and rate him higher than Middleton, Tamim. Although Middleton this summer might get a might get similar money, but but that's uh, another topic. Um. Anyways, yeah, yeah, Tamim, you were about to say something before I cut you off. Sorry about that. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's easy to speak about sports in in terms of the counterfactual, but I just think that the words they're at their best when they're playing the style that got them to the finals the past couple of years. And that's setting Curry or Thompson or anyone else off the ball screens and having those guys slip, get, they get rebounds, they get in transition and they get, they get Curry open threes, or even if they're not open and he has like a sliver of light, he's going to make those. And the Raptors took that away by, by playing their, by playing their aggressive defense, by playing their, um, unpopular defense that no one and, and, and no one in NBA plays. I don't think the Warriors have ever seen that defense. And you, they, the Warriors, they couldn't play that style of basketball because Curry would just get double teamed off of every screen he comes off of. So I think Curry should have made the adjustment to get the Warriors to play the way that they usually play. And you do that by putting shooters on the floor. Sure. So, um, then now, what, what would your ideal uh, five man lineup be then, Tamim? I th- so with with Thompson playing or. Uh, yeah, with Thompson playing because I mean that's that's a big factor. You have to assume Thompson plays because, like I said before, it's just a different series if only Curry is playing. Yeah, so it would, for me it would be Steph Curry, it'd be Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, Iguodala, and then I yeah I play Quinn Cook. Yeah, but then that's the thing, man. I think you get 
uh, one thing that happened, um, I'm not sure how much that lineup played. I could look at it, but one thing that happened that immediately actually strikes out, jumps out to me on that is they're going to get killed on the boards, dude. And um, yeah, they have no size there. Yeah, they're going to get killed on the boards. That's something that well, especially against the Raptors, who are extremely good. That, uh, that's an issue that you're going to have to deal with, but I think it at least gives you the opportunity to go out and runs. You're at you're at your best when when Curry and Thompson are hitting shots. If if you can't get them open looks, you're not going to win. The Warriors are just like any other team. So. so I think I think you're right to me, but like bigger picture, if you look at the Warriors this entire season, uh, having Kevin Durant basically mask a lot of the problems that they had as a team because they didn't really have a lot of depth to begin with, right? Like mm-hmm. even throughout the season, Quinn Cook or Alfonso McKinney or Jonas Repko were not like murdering it for the Warriors off the bench. Um, so like having Kevin Durant on their team masks so many of these problems where like, you're absolutely right that if there are more shooters for the Warriors on the court around Steph to take attention away from him, they would, you know, absolutely succeed and, and go back to their, you know, uh, brand of basketball that we're all like used to seeing in the last couple of years. But, uh, Kevin Durant was on the team the entire season and he masked all of that problem and that was there to begin with. So like. This season, this team, I don't think they ever had the personnel to really do that without Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson on the court. Because, I mean, that's those are their shooters, right? They have the three best scorers in the game, potentially, right? Like, that was their offense the entire season. Yeah. But uh, I think your job is... And I think you're right. You're absolutely right. If they had more shooters around Steph, mm-hmm. they could have succeeded more. But um, to think Quinn Cook would become that player after he wasn't really that player for the entire season... And same goes for McKinney or Jarebko, even Sean Livingston, even Andre Iguodala to some extent. Um, it's just that just goes to show, I think, ultimately who the better and deeper team was, which is the Raptors. Yeah, um, this season, Quinn Cook, he shot 40% in the regular season. Um, playoffs, I'm not sure I have to pull that up, but he did shoot 31% in this series. So, you know, um, it, it's a tough proposition. I think there's a lot of things the Warriors could have done better. I, I agree. But at the end of the day, I think, really, I, I got to give it up to the Raptors because everything they did seemed to come up aces. And whenever they needed something, uh, something came. I think uh, a big thing about the Raptors is uh, Pascal Siakam. Uh, when he played well, the Raptors won. When he didn't play well, the Raptors lost. I think that was a big thing as well. He was kind of a Jekyll and Hyde type of player for those finals. Yeah. I think Ibaka was also... a uh... X Factor player for them who he was really coming up big in like a lot of a lot of uh second half runs by the by the Raptors in game four and game six, even game five to some extent. Yeah, exactly. You know, the Raptors just kind of got contributions from everyone and and that's kind of the opposite of what the Warriors had because they couldn't get contributions from all the guys they needed to get them from. So that was that was some big stuff in this playoffs as well. Yeah, what do you what do you think, Tam? Anything from the Raptors side that stood out to you? I, you know, I think uh, they their depth really just stood out to me. Um, the talent they have on their team, both offensively and defensively, was impressive. But I think the biggest thing was just their, their like the unconventional style in which they played defense against the Warriors. So, you know, j- just going back to the, the Warriors, I think the the Raptors made a good adjustment defensively, and I just think the Warriors. They either didn't have the personnel 
or they didn't make the right adjustments. And it was one of those one of those two things. And at the end of the day, the, I think the cars just aligned in the Raptors' favor. I don't think they would have won the series if the Warriors were healthy. Yeah, um, I mean, undoubtedly but, with with Durant, I I don't see the Raptors winning the series. But that being said, they're they do have a roster with a lot of dynamic players, dynamic scorers, dynamic playmakers, and they have guys that um, everyone playing in, in their in their rotation can make a, a significant contribution. Yeah, I mean, I, I would uh, I would definitely agree with that. Um, you know, they they definitely had a lot of players step up uh, in this playoffs. Um, one one big thing is um just kind of the the way they play the unconventional defense um i i understand that a lot of it was just uh, like i understand the big thing that stands out is the fact that they play unconventional defense but it's also just a lot of disciplined defense too um you know the way they rotated was good uh they never like they double teamed well like you know they saw like little things that uh that were problems for them like i think clay thompson on kyle lowry in the post uh, whenever that became sort of an issue, they they brought a really good double team and forced Clay to you know he, the, the, his first pass was always taken away and they forced him to dribble out of the post and you know just little things like that that kind of stagnate the Warriors' offense because you know like you guys said it's always about their offense is about keeping the ball moving a lot, um, keeping the players moving a lot and I think the Raptors did a good job of kind of uh, taking away that movement you know and taking away that uh, taking away kind of the flow that makes the Warriors so great. Yep, I agree. It's really good communication on defense for that man. It takes really good um, rotations, and like you said earlier in the podcast, Ronak, IQ. They all have extremely high IQ on defense. Where it, you know sometimes you just got to make switches on the fly or run out to the corner or help on someone that you wouldn't normally expect to. But if you have high IQ, you can quickly make that decision to go somewhere where you may not be accustomed to going. And they were doing that all series, right? They were making great plays defensively all series, and just being in spots where warriors typically don't uh, see defenses get to. And like, usually the warriors are like half a step ahead of everyone else. Right. That's kind of their offense at its best. And it seemed like the Raptors were there every single time and just kind of getting in, in the way of the warriors. And that um, just totally got them out of rhythm. Yep. One thing I want to add is I was actually really impressed with um, the Raptors. So one of the intricacies of their, of their defense is they were, able to keep Mark Gasol on the floor for a very extended minutes. I didn't think that would be possible just because of his, he is kind of slow footed. And if you were to play a defensive style that other teams play against the Warriors, Mark Gasol wouldn't fit that, that, you know, that sort of player. And so I think though, in terms of, you know, the, the starting, the, the five man lineup that I suggested earlier, if you play, if you play that, that you know that lineup and you have shooters i don't think you can play marcus all as many minutes and you if you do that you're not going to get the same discrepancies in rebounding between the two teams so that you know that's something that i think the warriors should have considered but they they found a way to make marcus all relevant in in an nba finals that i don't think if he was on a different team he might have not been able to be relevant yeah, um, that, that's definitely a good point. I think a lot of it is just defensively, right? Like, it's, it goes back to the IQ thing, because when you see kind of, if when you see a big man that's kind of running towards a bad situation, like a like a Curry, Draymond, pick and roll, something like that, you have to find some kind of way to neutralize it, right? Whether that's uh, sort of having the big man switch to someone else before you get there, or, um, you know, maybe letting the, letting the big man switch the pick and roll, 
um, or doubling and then having the rotation behind it. All, all those kind of stuff require high defensive IQ from the players involved. So there, there's that, which I think was a big factor in keeping him on the floor uh, as well. I agree with all that, yep. Yeah, so I mean, and then also Ibaka, man. Um, Ibaka, whenever Gasol like, started having a little bit of trouble, they could always take out Gasol and put in Ibaka. I think the biggest thing is that um, you know, both the centers actually gave the Raptors effective minutes. You know, it wasn't like, okay, you can't play Ibaka because he's getting killed on the pick and roll, so now Gasol has to play most of the game. It was kind of like, oh, Gasol's having some trouble, let's put in Ibaka. So at no point were the Warriors able to take away the, the Raptors center at any time, and that's like a big factor for sure. Yeah, and that's huge. Uh, Daryl Moore was just on a podcast, and he was talking about how the Warriors uh, sort of force five men out of uh, out of your rotation because they don't do well against the Warriors. And the Raptors kind of just uh, they went against that theory, and they were able to figure out a way to win playing Marcus Saul and Ibaka and these other guys heavy minutes. So, yeah, it speaks a lot to to how good of a coach Nick Nurse is. Um, you know, I, I was, I talked, I don't know if I talked with you guys, but I was definitely talking with a lot of people before the season. And, you know, a lot of people were wondering why did they fire Dwayne Casey? Like, who is this Nick Nurse guy, like from the G League, like used to coach like overseas? Like, like who is this guy? Why did they fire Dwayne Casey? And then I, you know, I always thought it was a great move. Uh, Nick Nurse is a guy that he, he's kind of like a trend I see in sports in general, where a lot of developmental coaches are getting hired at the top level, like whether it's Cliff Kingsbury going from the Big 12 to the Cardinals um in, in the nfl and you know like a lot of g league coaches are getting promoted these days too and uh, nick nurse is a prime example of you know he tried a lot of new things at the g league level he won the g league championship uh, he's won championships overseas because of his willingness to try new things not because of the talent or lack thereof that he had on his roster and i think um kind of he kept innovating and he kind of just took everyone that was there on his team and figured out a way to make them useful you know like norman powell became a really useful contributor. Um, he found a way to kind of manage Gasol and Ibaka, even though they both played the same position, and Ibaka kind of had to come off the bench after starting for most of the season. Um, he managed, like, having a team where Kawhi didn't play, like, almost half the games of the season. So I think it's, it really speaks to what he did as a coach as well. I think he did an exceptional job this year. Yeah, it's really well said, man. He did, he did a really, really good job, and um, he, he deserves it, obviously. With the, the amount of skills the coach has displayed like you just said over his entire career he deserves to like achieve this at the highest level of competition in the sport exactly exactly um also one more thing uh mid-season i think nick nurse's mom passed away so that's also kind of a, a really touching story about them winning the finals as well just wanted to add that in. yeah uh, any uh closing thoughts on the finals or do you guys think you've said all you need to say I think we cleared our chest, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you guys think this is the end of the Warriors dynasty as we know it? Because I think with the injuries, um, it's definitely not next year. Uh, I'd say if anything, it's year after next. But I think next year is just going to be kind of a mulligan for them. No, I think if if, uh, if Clay Thompson can make it back by the by the time playoffs start, they'll be fine. Because I think they'll they'll add some they'll, they'll add some wing shooters for sure. In the offseason. Well, the only problem is that they don't have really any cap space. And regardless of K- if, if KD stays or not, they won't have any cap space. So that's the only issue that I see the Warriors facing in the next couple of years on whether or not this dynasty stays alive is um, just 
I mean, the, the thing that made the Warriors so great was their their depth. And then now they have top-heavy level talent. And, you know, if KD leaves, they'll still have a lot of talent, but they'll have a lot of money tied up. And if he stays, then they'll have basically the same team. So if they can find a way to solve their cap space issues, then I think they'll remain pretty good for a couple of years. But if KD stays, then, then I think, I mean, yeah, next year will be kind of an off year. and. Clay comes back for the playoffs, they may compete, but I don't think they'll be championship contenders. Um, and then I think if KD comes back, then then they have a chance for another, they have another championship window basically once he's recovered. Yeah, I think, you know, what you said about wing shooting, Tamim, that sounds great on paper that they'll emphasize wing shooting, but who are they really going to get? Because remember, because they don't have any cap space, like Ebo said, now they don't have anything to bid on these wing shooters, right? Like who they can't outbid other teams that are looking for wing shooters. Like I know the right. Rockets are always looking for shooters. Um, you know, every team's looking for shooters. So how are the Warriors gonna outbid the teams? Is kind of my what they offer uh, what they offer is an opportunity for someone to win a championship. So you know, look at look at like Kyle Corver. You don't know if he's gonna stick with that with them with the Memphis Grizzlies. Yeah, he just got traded. That, that's true. I mean they can get so, Corver. You know, there's guys who will who will take minimums just to just to have the opportunity to win championships. And they don't need to yeah, add okay. Harris or anyone great. All they need to do is add someone that's better than Quinn Cook. Maybe and a guy that they can play thirty plus minutes a game if needed. Um yeah, that, you, you can get like guys like that that are wing players at a discount. So no, I don't think yeah, you can add any, any that wing player who can shoot and play 30 minutes a game. That's not happening. I'm sorry, bro. There's no way that is, that's tough. 30 the, minutes. The vet men, the vet men route can be successful for them though. You know, just going for players who signed the vet men and, and, you know, relying on their four stars. That's definitely a, a, a winnable formula, but I, I think with the way the NBA is now, and it seems like it's going to remain where there's a, couple teams that have really really talented squads um competing for championships it's just going to be hard for them to continue a dynasty i think yeah i mean i can see for example like if vince carter came to their team he can't play more than like 17 or 18 minutes and that's like the absolute best case you know well yeah if that well that'll help them you know having it'll definitely help them but like you can't get 30 bro you can you can have like 15 to 20 thompson if you have clay thompson uh raymond green curry Iguodala and Vince Carter or any other shooter out there—that's a that's a lineup that can win games, and you can't play a box one against that against that lineup. Okay, so, um, that, that's, that's fair. I just I, I can see I can see them being a contender. I just think next year, uh, it's it's not a championship for them. That that's my early assessment of it. But yeah, you know, depending on who they get, maybe they do get a wing guy who can shoot really well and can give them twenty five minutes a game. You know, that might, might change. I just don't see it happening. Look at look at guys like Daniel House. Like you, you can pick guys up off the off the street, and they can play. They can play long minutes. So there's a there's definitely an opportunity, and I think they'll they'll hit on at least one guy. Sure. So. Yeah. I mean, uh, Daniel House specifically. If you looked at his playoffs, is pretty dreadful. But but I, <laughs> but I see your concept um, about about what you mean. I definitely think yeah, scrap heap for the Warriors for sure. But it just like it's hard, right? Like like you know we say that about the NBA draft all the time, like that it's really hard out of, after the 12th pick to hit on somebody. Like I say, I would say the same thing about the scrap heap is that you only kind of talk about the guys who are good examples, but you don't talk about the guys who picked up off the scrap heap and, and kind of did nothing for your team, you know? So it, it goes both ways. I see what you're saying, but I think the Warriors, I, if they need to make a significant change, I, I just don't see how they have the flexibility to make a significant change to like the second unit. 
But that's something that uh, will get played out in the future. So any final thoughts from you, Ebo? Uh, how the Raptors move forward, maybe? I mean, I think uh, I think their biggest obstacle ahead is resigning Kawhi. Um, and then after that, it's eventually finding players who can replace uh, Marcus Saul and Serge Ibaka and eventually even Kyle Lowry. I mean, those are veterans who are not getting any younger. So just, I think... First obstacle is Kawhi Leonard, and then after that, they can continue to retool around Kawhi Leonard. Um, so I think Masai Ujiri is one of the best executives in the game. So he'll he'll probably, I wouldn't be surprised if he has success with that. But it's a matter of keeping Kawhi ultimately for the Raptors. Exactly, and I kind of like the way they've made the contracts. It's so that if Kawhi doesn't stay, uh, Lowry, Gasol, and Ibaka, or I'm not sure about Gasol. I think Gasol is expiring. Lowry is definitely expiring. And then after that, um, they also have, like, most of their veterans that are big cap holds are all expiring if Kawhi does leave. So they could go into total rebuild mode. I think that'd be pretty crazy, though, if you win the NBA Finals and then have to go into rebuild mode the next year. That'd yeah, be a total that be, Toronto that thing to do. pretty crazy. <laughs> and, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't foresee it happening that quickly, but uh, I think... I think if that's the smartest thing to do, I wouldn't be surprised if that ends up happening just because, um, you know, that's kind of... Actually, you know what? No, I don't think they'll do that. I think I think they'll find a way to remain competitive and never really fully restart, but um, kind of ride out a couple of players and then just have a slower rebuild. I can't see them just not being competitive at all for a couple of years in hopes of finding a star. I think that's too big of a risk for them to take. Well, I mean... I. You know, Lowry expiring and Gasol expiring, those are two pretty attractive trade chips if Kawhi does leave. And, you know, Ujiri, he's a great executive, so you can never count anything out. I, I, I have faith that he'll make the right move. I just don't know what the move would be, like you're saying. It yeah. may be a rebuild. They may stay competitive. You never know. Yeah, um, exactly. It's really hard to say, but ultimately it comes down to Kawhi staying or leaving. That's that's the big indicator. Exactly. And uh, and with that, I you know, I'm going to make a little smooth transition into someone who did leave his team, and that's Anthony Davis. Uh, huge trade went down. The Lakers traded Josh Hart, Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, and a bunch of future first-round picks for Anthony Davis. Uh, what's your guys' initial reaction on it? Oh, the Lakers go first. Yeah, Ebo's a Lakers <laughs> fan, so it's only fair that we let him go first. Uh, my initial reaction is... Similar to, I think we discussed this on the podcast, uh, kind of what I was thinking when the initial trade rumors were going on back in February is that, you know, I'm a big fan of Brandon Ingram and Lonzo Ball and Josh Hart. Um, I was definitely supporters of them and still believe in them, but uh, none of them are going to become Anthony Davis. And uh, that's just a reality. That's just a fact. Anthony Davis has top five player potential for the next five six years of his career um and so getting a player like that i think is massive it's absolutely massive and you couple that with the fact that the lakers have lebron who obviously has an extremely limited window for how much longer he's going to play in the lakers and how much longer he's going to play at this level at all and so if you have a player like lebron who has three years maximum left on this team um, and you don't know, especially given his injury this year, you don't know what level of play he's going to maintain for all those three years. Uh, getting a player like Anthony Davis next to him 
instantly puts them as championship contenders um, with the Warriors injuries happening this year and kind of uh, everything else is happening in the league with players moving potentially uh, this gives them an opportunity to win a championship right now. And, and if you're LeBron, that's the best case scenario you could have on your team. Right. So I think ultimately the, the move that they made was the correct move. And there's a lot to be said about how much they gave up. And as a Laker fan, I'm worried about those, you know, six years of potential first round picks being in the Pelicans hands coming back to bite us. But at the end of the day, uh, when LeBron James is on your team, your goal is to win a championship right now. That that is your goal, right? There's no other goals you can really have. And I think they put themselves in a position to do that for the next three years and Anthony Davis, however long he stays for the next couple of years after that. And, and you know, that's that's kind of what the Lakers do as a franchise in their history. And they've done it again. And it's kind of just um, right now, I think it's a good move. Yeah, exactly. I think it's actually a win-win for both sides. Um, like the big thing is the Pelicans get all kinds of picks. Um, the 2021 top eight protected pick, it's not really protected. It's if it's not in the top eight for the Pelicans, then the next year's pick in 2022 is unprotected. Um, I may have mixed up the years, but that the, no, I think I think you got that right. Yeah, it's yeah, 2021, right? Yeah, so that's actually the funny thing about the trade. Um, it, it's set up perfectly for the Pelicans, and it's also set up perfectly for the Lakers. I think now the big step is what are the Pelicans going to do with the picks, right? Um, and what are they yeah. going to do with their team? And then the big step is also what are the Lakers going to do with their team? Um, you know, reportedly they're trying to renegotiate part of the deal with the uh, Pelicans so that they could free up uh, cap space to sign a third a max player. But, um, you know, I think we'll discuss further as well. But I think the big thing the Lakers need is they need depth and they need shooting, right? This is another thing, another team that needs shooting. And we'll probably have to get it for the minimum if they sign a lot of max players. But I also think they can't go wrong or sign another max player. But they also can't go wrong using the cap space to get like, you know, one like, you know, 15 to 20 million guy and then a few really good capable 3 and D guys. I think that's also not a bad route to go as well. Well, What do you think about the roster construction, Tam? Yeah, I think um, Justin. I think the Lakers what they did with the trade was the right thing to do. I think uh, similar similar to what Ebo is saying, Lonzo Ball and Ingram, they were guys that played for multiple years, and they were guys that you don't know if they're going to be successful. Um, at least in the short term, you you don't know about the long term, but you know that in the short term, um, based off what we've seen some of the fundamental issues Lonzo has in terms of his jump shot. Those are issues that are going to take uh, multiple years, in my opinion, for him to become uh, a starting point guard on a championship NBA basketball team. And I don't think he was, he's sort of at that stage. I think you can say the same for Ingram um, in terms of being someone that can play off the ball, um, which is what Lonzo, which was what uh, LeBron needs the most um, in terms of his small forward. I think, and I think Anthony Davis, one of the things that people aren't paying attention to is I don't think he'll, he will help them out as much as uh, people like to say. Uh, I, I think in order to win a championship, you need a, you need playmaking as well. And what Anthony Davis gives you is he gives you post play and he, he gives you rebounds. But I think they still have some holes in terms of a guy that can – dribble the ball and make plays for others besides LeBron. The Lakers don't have that right now. And we'll see if they can add someone. 
But I think just having Anthony Davis, he makes he's he makes your team a lot better than with Lonzo and with Ingram. But I think in terms of being able to compete for a championship, I don't know if, if the Lakers are there with with uh, Anthony Davis. Even if they add a couple of spot up shooters, I think they'll need to add at least one more, um, one more ball handler or one more playmaker. Yeah, no, I completely agree. They're they're definitely gonna have to make more additions. Um, they're definitely gonna add need to add at least one more playmaker, whether it's a max slot or if it's um, or if it's just like a highly paid guy. Uh, and they're gonna have to add more shooting. Um, but I think uh, at least on what they have right now, a LeBron Anthony Davis pick and roll automatically becomes the most devastating pick and roll in the NBA right now, and and that's even including the Steph Draymond pick and roll. But that's just my opinion. Agreed, Ronak. I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think what you said is correct to me, and that they, they need to fill out their roster, and how they fill out their roster will determine uh, how close they are to a championship contender. And that's one thing I'm interested in seeing. I personally, Ronak, agree with you that having depth would be a better route. Um, but I think, you know, $30 million in today's market only gives you so much depth, right? That's like one really good player that you can have as a role player and then maybe another solid player so but uh, um, one, one thing if i can interject evo you know what the rest of the money does for you though is that it gives you the highest price or the highest bid for a three and d for effective three and d players that's what it does right so yeah it's really would you rather have a max guy or would you rather have a non-max guy who's a playmaker with maybe like a deficiency on defense or maybe a def- little shooting deficiency and do you want multiple three and D guys or just one max player? There's no right answer to that, but you know, sure. Yeah, exactly. That's, there's no right answer. And I think, uh, depending on, you know, realistic situations, having a max player in the case of injuries may be better, but overall, if it's in a vacuum, having those types of role players, those three and D role players around a player like LeBron, um, is the best case scenario. So yeah, there's no right answer. I just think uh, with the amount of money that they do have, there's a very, there's a limit to how much they can get with that money uh, with three and D players. Like they can really only get one, maybe two, three and D players, and that may be enough. But um, you, I guess, it's just comparing how much that raises the ceiling of your team compared to having a max guy. Um, and I personally would like to go with the would have liked the Lakers to go with the death route, but if they go with the max guy route, I don't think that's wrong. Um, it, it's just, you know, at this stage in LeBron's career, he's not going to play every single game in the regular season as well. And I think you need, if you were to go the depth route, the you'd run into a problem in the regular season where LeBron's going to sit out a couple of games and you wouldn't know, you wouldn't know if you could win anything. So I mean, I think Anthony Davis can still be pretty well, good. Like, if you have the right players around both of them, and like, it's a it's a properly built team. Which whether that's going to happen or not is a completely different discussion. But ideally, if it's a properly built team and LeBron sits out one night, I think Anthony Davis can can hold his own against a lot of players. And he's shown that with the Pelicans as well. That there are some nights where he was the best player on the court, and he won. It's just a matter of doing that over eighty-two games is different, and he wouldn't have to do that. And neither would LeBron, right? Neither of them would have to do that for 82 games. They can each dominate on any given night if the other is out. And the rest of the time, they can use each other to kind of 
complement each other's talents. Yeah, I, I think basically kind of what Tamim is also saying, and I think what this is kind of uh, heading to is, do you trust the Lakers to spend, break up the money effectively and make multiple good decisions on personnel? Or would you rather that they just take a swing at one max player and more than likely get that decision right, right? Because I think that if you do spend for the depth, uh, then you have to make multiple correct personnel decisions with the money that you're using. Yeah. And I doubt the Lakers would do that. So Correct. Now, yeah, I agree with that. I don't trust saying, the Lakers to do that. And based on what you said about the Lakers personnel decisions, I would actually say it's better for them to go to, for the max. But in, in a vacuum, I would say there's no real right decision. But given the fact of the context of the Lakers, right. I would say, yeah, you probably got to go for the max. And you would agree, agree with that, right, yeah. Tam? Uh, given the context. Yeah, I'd Lakers. agree with that. I don't think you can – I don't think Anthony Davis – if LeBron sits out 15 games, I think they go 500 in those games just with Anthony Davis. Um, I'm not sure if they would go. It depends who they're playing, right? It depends, like all. It, it depends on a ton of factors. But I mean, yeah. if, if it, just, it depends on a ton of factors that we don't know yet, which I guess is you know that's that's part of it. But yeah, I think mainly they need to have they need to build a team around them correctly, and the chances of them making multiple correct decisions with role players, I think, is just lower. I think one thing you could it's not a Jimmy Butler or Kemba Walker, for example. I think one thing you could do in in Ebo's case, you you'd sign a bunch of role players and you play a lot of money for them, but you'd also sign a guy like Ricky Rubio that could run your run your second unit, or he could you know play with Anthony Davis in the games that LeBron isn't playing heavy minutes or he's not playing at all, and yeah. he'd still be able to give you formidable minutes. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, I think Ricky Rubio, there won't be a huge market for him. So you might actually be able to get him at a discount. Um, right right now, the contract, uh, uh, his restricted um, contract would be a $22 million, I think. Restricted agency contract would be $22 million if the Jazz want him, which they obviously don't because they traded for Mike Conley. We'll get into that. But um, yes, yeah, so I think Rubio might come at a discount, especially uh, after the way he performed in the playoffs. Wasn't that great against Houston? So you could get him at a discount. That would help. Uh, a player I really like for them, though, is Malcolm Brogdon. Um, yeah, he might come on like the higher side, uh, close to $32 million. Or Not close to $32 million, but he would definitely like uh, leave you less space And if you were to get Rubio. But I think Brogdon would be an ideal third guy to put with Davis and, uh, and LeBron James. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, that'd be great as well. Um, one thing about uh, Brogdon is he, he's not used to playing um, heavy minutes in crucial moments of game where the ball needs to be in his hands and he has to make plays for other people. Rubio does have that experience. Uh, okay, I, I guess that's fair. But I mean, I, at, at the same time, I, 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 I don't know. I think Brogdon is a better player than Rubio, in my opinion. He's a better shooter, and I think he does everything else uh, just as well as Rubio. And I think he's a better defender as well. So um, yeah, I agree with that, Ronak. I, I think I think Brogdon would be the better choice there to complement LeBron and, and AD. And you're right; he doesn't have the greatest playmaking skills, but um, you don't need him to have great playmaking skills. You need him to be a good third option for LeBron and Anthony Davis. And I think he does that way better than Ricky Rubio would. But realistically, I think that's a pretty steep price. Um, and I think if the Lakers are in a position where they could just hire or they could offer someone else a a max that's like a player on a different level than Brogdon, they would they would rather do that. Yeah, but but I think uh, going back to the Ricky Rubio point, uh, we were talking actually uh, before the podcast, and 
Tamim did bring up an interesting point about the way Frank Vogel likes to run his offense and how uh, Rubio's lack of shooting may not be that big of a deal if they were hypothetically to get him because because of like the motion that Vogel usually runs as an offensive. Do you want to talk about that more, Tamim? Uh, that was a good point that you were bringing up the other day. Yeah. Or, earlier. So traditionally, when you think of Frank Vogel teams, you think of they're pretty. They play pretty slow paced, but they have good defenses and they play with a lot of structure offensively, and that can sort of mask uh, player deficiencies in terms of shooting, just because there's always movement and there's always off ball screens. So similar to the Warriors, they have ways of masking non shooters, and so. I think if you were to play Rubio in that system, he would be able to succeed even even though he's not the greatest shooter. And so if you if Vogel can mask that a little bit, I think having Rubio on your team would help a lot. In this in, in the sense that he will he will be able to run your second unit really effectively, especially with his experience. But I think he can also win you games along with Anthony Davis if LeBron decides to sit some games which he'll have to do this year just because of his age. And if that means you win four games, four more games in the regular season that LeBron doesn't play, that's huge. We saw last year in the playoffs, uh, just a couple of games affects playoff seedings a lot. So that means more rest for LeBron in the long run. That, that means and, um, maybe you get a couple more games off before you go on your next series because if you, if you play a lesser opponent. So th- these are things that I think the Lakers should consider as well. Exactly. I mean, right now, the top three teams are the Warriors, Lakers, and the Rockets, right? I think everyone's in agreement about that uh, as of right now, correct? Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, I mean, the Jazz yeah, will be in there, too, and, and we'll get to the Jazz shortly. I keep teasing uh, our 40, 40 fans out there with the, with the Jazz, but uh, I promise we'll get there, guys. <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, I mean, so those are the top three teams. So that means that one of them, uh, or two of the teams, are going to have to play each other, right? And like Tamman said, those, those four games or whatever could be the difference, and that's a great point. For sure. So, um, anyways, yeah. And any closing thoughts on this Lakers trade, guys? Um, anything at all? My only closing thought is uh, that um, you know I think similar to how um, after signing LeBron, the Lakers front office is really was really judged in what moves they made after signing LeBron, not signing LeBron himself. Um, so the same thing this summer, they'll really be judged on what moves they make after getting Anthony Davis, you know, I think this was not necessarily easy. That's not the right word, but this was the easy part. Now it's filling out the rest of your roster. And we saw last year, what a disaster it was for them. So this is kind of the moment where they'll be judged from and the decisions that they make in the next couple of weeks. All right. So another big trade that went down today, guys, was uh, the Grizzlies trading Mike Conley to the jazz. So the jazz traded away Kyle Korver, Jay Crowder, Grayson Allen, uh, their first-round pick this year and a future first-round pick. I think it might be next year's for Mike Conley. So I think this, this is a huge uh, get for the Jazz. It kind of fixes their biggest issue, which is their point guard spot. So I think uh, he, Conley's going to fit really well with Donovan Mitchell and, um, and Gobert and the kind of rest of the team they have. So do you guys think this uh, makes the Jazz a, like close to a top-three team in the West? Do you think they can compete with the Lakers, Warriors, and Rockets? Or yeah. do you see this um, getting them close but not quite there yet? I think it makes them close. I don't think they're, I don't think they're on par with those other three teams. Maybe the Lakers, though, um, as of right now. Uh, I think that 
I, I, I've always felt bad for Donovan Mitchell because he's had to do so much, um, especially in the playoffs. Having Mike Conley will allow Donovan Mitchell to not be pressured to make every single shot. He's only he's a young player, and it'll give him the opportunity to sort of play off the ball a little bit more. Uh, he's a not uh, Donovan Mitchell's a natural two guard. He wasn't dribbling the ball a bunch in college. He wasn't a point guard, which is sort of what the the Jazz are trying to morph him into. And so I think having a guy like Mike Conley will allow Donovan Mitchell to develop, but also it'll put the Jazz in a position of think about winning games now, whereas before they were trying to win games, but they are also trying to de- develop Donovan Mitchell. So I think it'll help in that sense. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Ibo, what do you think, man? Yeah, I think uh, I think what both of you said about their point guard spot and, and to me what you said about uh, having someone alongside Donovan Mitchell handle the ball and, and be more of a point guard and playmaker while Donovan Mitchell can be in his in the position that he's most comfortable in uh, as a shooting guard. I think that's great for the for the Jazz and it really raises their ceiling. But I think um, for them to be considered on the same level of the Warriors, the Rockets, and the Lakers as well um, depends more on on how much Mitchell develops. Because I think that uh, he's shown in the first two seasons of his career he's a pretty good player, but he has some pretty glaring weaknesses to his game, especially offensively um, and even defensively a little bit. Um, and so if he can take the next step and really be the best player for the jazz and have calmly compliment him the way he does, um, or the way he plays his position, then they could really be a player. They could be a team that's on that top four level along with those other teams. Um, but I, I think if he kind of stays the same player that he is now, then, then I would still put them on a lower tier than, than the other three. Yeah. I put them in a lower Close, tier, but not quite. Exactly. Close, but not quite for me, too. I think that it still needs to make one more big move. Uh, something they could do is they could renounce the rights to Derek Favors and uh, like all their other players, basically. And then they would gain another $19 million in cap space. And that might be enough to go after one more impact player, uh, whether that's through a trade or signing someone like Al Horford, for example. So, um, you know, although I'm not sure if Al Horford would uh, would be that cheap, but... You know, I think I still think they need to make one more big move uh, in order to get on that level. But uh, anyways, yeah, guys, they I can think... get another really good wing. Um, I think think they could they could solidify themselves exactly. closer to that level. Exactly. Yeah, I think they need like one big wing guy for sure. Um, but I'm not sure they definitely won't have the cap space for a max. So we'll we'll see what they can do and what they end up doing. Uh, anyways, if anyone has any further thoughts, uh, or if anyone doesn't have any further thoughts, I think that'll about wrap it up for today's show. So, uh, yeah. I think we'll be able to get everything off of our chests. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. All right, well, uh, Ibrahim and Tam, thanks for joining me again. Appreciate it, guys. Appreciate it. And, uh, thanks, man. That'll thanks wrap up the uh, first ever NBA offseason episode of this podcast. So thanks for listening, guys. Excited, See for, you later. The, excited for the rest of the offseason, man. It's still yet to come. Exactly, man. It's going to be a fun summer. The Rockets. Yeah, the Rockets will be fun for sure. All right, guys. Thanks for listening.